0: welcome or welcome back to this week's edition
1: of the systematic investor series with moritz siebert and i niels castle larsen where each week we take the pulse of the global market through the lens of a rules-based investor and of course for those of you who have been here before you know that our conversations are intended to keep you focused inspired sometimes we may even have to hold your hands through this investment climate and of course for those of you who are new to the show Perhaps this will trigger your curiosity to check out our back catalogue and listen to some of the past episodes that you may have missed. First of all, let me just say another big thank you to those of you who um, left a rating and review in iTunes. I just want to say we really do appreciate it and rest assured we read all of them. With that out of the way, Moritz, good afternoon. How are you doing today? Hey, good afternoon, Niels. Good to hear your voice. Doing fine. Hope you're doing fine too. Yes, not too bad. Autumn has set in here in Switzerland. Mm-hmm. From the sunny climate a week ago, we're back in the rain and windy weather, which is uh, makes it much nicer actually to be indoors doing a podcast.
2: Yes, yeah, same here. I mean, I guess we, you know, the two of us were probably only 250 kilometers or so apart, and it's exactly the same weather here. Leaves are falling. It's wet. It's pouring down, and believe it or not, we have uh, four between four and five degrees centigrade. So it it kind of like it feels like. You know, last week we had 27 degrees and now it's four, so something yeah. has changed.
1: Absolutely. something. Summer has changed. is gone. Summer is gone. Something has changed in the markets as well. I was just uh, looking through sort of a couple of things to talk about in, in, in this kind of introduction we always do. And this week, we did see a couple of articles come come out uh, talking about kind of the, the challenges and the woes of trend-following strategies so far. And in 2020 and i I think frankly it's not surprising nor is the timing of these articles because september is certainly looking to be perhaps the most difficult month so far in 2020 for strategies that rely on kind of medium to longer term trends so first i want to say that i do understand why some people are looking at uh, all the volatility we've had this year and they might think that this is a good environment for trend following strategies because, after all, a lot of things are going on, stuff is happening, and and you know that that's understandable. But the thing is, we all have to remember that trend following is not just relying on increased volatility, but rather an increased directional price action, which in some cases can come with higher volatility, but can also come with with lower volatility. So. It got me thinking that maybe some of you listening out there uh, may not be aware that each day on my website, I uh, publish something called the Trend Barometer, which is my attempt to measure how well and also how many markets in a diversified portfolio of 44 markets is in some kind of trend. And that's obviously based on some momentum, momentum indicators, et cetera, et cetera. And historically, when you get kind of 45 to 50% of these markets in a quote-unquote trending state, based on the definition that's in there, you would expect trend-following strategies to produce positive returns. But for those of you who follow it on the website, the trend barometer actually in in September has really had a nosedive down to levels less than 20, which really confirms the negative tone and the negative returns that we're seeing In the trend following space uh, so far in september so i thought maybe after our normal introductions which we might spend a little bit of time talking about why this year uh, maybe diving into some of the market action but even maybe broaden it out a little bit like we started doing last week where we we go back a a few more years because um we, we we know that performance the last four or five years haven't been stellar to say the least, in, in, in this space. So hopefully you're up for that. But first, I'm much more interested in hearing what's happened this week in your world.
2: Yeah, I, I am up for that. And I can, I concur that, you know, with your trend barometer, I think you have it on your website, toptradersonblack.com, where you publish the numbers. If, if this is at a very low number, I'm not surprised. Because even when you just step back from the screens and you look at the charts, what I see is that markets have kind of like become flat there's almost like visibly there are zero trends. When you look at bonds, right, I mean, there has been a trend when you, you know, zoom out a little bit and you look at the performance of, say, the 10-year, the 2-year, the 5-year, the bunt, the bubble, the shots, all of that for the past couple of months, it kind of like looks like a flat range-bound environment. And, you know, the surprisingly, this is not only true for bonds. This is true for some of the equity indices, the euro stocks 50, for instance, right, kind of like looks flattish where it is for the past, you know, two to three months. It's same for Euro-US dollar. Yes, the euro has become stronger in the past couple of weeks. But then again, when you zoom out a bit, it's kind of like in a range bound environment there. There hasn't been any sustained trend behind it. And actually, I would say the same could, could be true for gold as well, even though gold has recently made new highs. But again, zooming out of that chart, it has lost its Strength, strength that it used to have at the beginning of the year. And this is a bad environment for us. You know, if, if nothing moves, if nothing trends, then it's impossible for us to make money. We'll just have positions on and they'll you know zigzag around a little bit, but we can never get onto the longer term trend, which is something that we actually must do every once in a while in order to pay for all those small losers that we're taking to reach our investment goals. So I agree with that. General observation of a flat of, like a flat, flat type of price environment where not much happens. And unfortunately, this is, well, logically, not unfortunately, unfortunately as well, but logically, this is also reflected in my performance. I think I've lost about 60 basis points yet again this week. I'm down a bit more than 7% for the year. I've had many losers in the portfolio, the most of them relatively small. I didn't get stopped out, but, you know, just small losers across the board. Two or three that were larger. Like, you know, I'm holding a long position in the emissions contract and uh, that was a larger loss this past week. And I think I lost in, in OJ. I lost in soybeans where I think soybeans the week before was a good winner. Now it was a big loser. And I didn't really have much to show on the on the winning position side where, you know, I made any outsized gains. So it's this kind of like uh, inconvenient period where you do whatever you want, you follow the system. It just, you know, there's no grip behind any of these price trends. And therefore it feels like every week I'm getting a little slap and it's like, ah, oh, here, you've lost another half a percent. And how about next week you lose another half a percent, right? It's kind of like it becomes this, this slow melting away, which is going on since quite a few months actually. So it's, it's really this inconvenient phase. Of, of trading that I'm currently sitting in, it's not the end of the world. Like, you know, when you step back from that and say, okay, you're, you're down 7% or 7.5% on your portfolio. Okay, well, you know, it's, yes, it's 7%. I'd rather be up 7%, but, you know, 7% is not something I'm trading at 20% fall, right? 7% is not something that. I should get too worried about, uh, given the volatility target, not the target, but the volatility that I generally trade at. So it is what it is. How about you, Niels?
1: Yeah, no, absolutely the same. I would say we lost a little bit more than 60 basis points. I think you've done well this week. Uh, I think it was a bit of a tough week. And from our side, it was really the currencies with the strength of the dollar and also the metals uh especially silver is just getting crushed at the yeah. moment so um so that hurts uh we did actually make money I think in bonds and equities and just not not enough to offset some of uh, what's going on in in those two sectors but yeah as you said I mean if you zoom out and and you look at things and we we kind of started the conversation about this uh last week because I do think that these periods where markets are difficult and where performance is sluggish, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, these are the really important ones for a number of reasons. One, you, you learn a lot and you may have to adjust what you do a little bit in order to improve. That's one thing. But the other thing is this is the time where you need to hold on to uh, these type of strategies. And this doesn't go just for trend following. This goes for many strategies if you truly believe in it. And I'll come to that at the very end. But first, I just want to say, first of all, I mean, 2020 is kind of, it's the complete opposite of last year. Uh, And I can only speak, you know, obviously I'm talking about uh, from, from our point of view right now. But last year, we had seven months in a row with positive performance. I mean, that's only been overtaken once, I think in 2001 or something like that. Where we had like eight months in a row and this is this is a 40 odd track record a 40 year track record plus so so this doesn't happen that often so last year was kind of hmm, exceptionally smooth and and we all could you know high five every month it was a new positive month and i was sitting there and say yeah i hope we all really internalize the feeling of how good it feels when that happens because we're also going to face um the opposite because that's kind of what trend followers mostly do. I mean, we spend most of our time, uh, a large percentage of our time, in some kind of drawdown. So last week, I know we talked about more, it's the the fact that if you, at least again, using uh, our data, if you look at the sort of from a sector point of view, clearly this year, but even in the last couple of years, equities have been a really tricky sector to to trade as a, as a trend follower. And I was just going to call up a couple of charts on my screen, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners have their own... Uh, access to charts. But one of the markets that has been especially tricky in our situation, given the time frame we're trading, is something like the Australian SPY, right? Where, like with most indices, you got into 2020 in an uptrend, which was pretty good, actually, because it had been going on for a while. So position and exposure was pretty high. And then, of course, like with all the equity markets, we just saw this massive sell-off and really steep, quick reversal which means two things really one we lose a lot of money on the actual reversal so that's that's obviously giving back some profits but could even be adding a a few extra losses because of the speed of way the way it happened but then in some cases because equities are also different this year so in some cases and the spy was one of them it triggered on our side to get short signals so we actually went short pretty much around the lows of uh, of where the SPY traded. And, and just for those who may not follow it, it fell from about 7,100 all the way down to 4,400. So there was a pretty steep drop. So clearly, when you start getting short signals at that time, of course, reduced because they have to be sized appropriately with volatility and volatility was high. So it wasn't big short positions, but still because of the V-shaped and very ferocious way that the markets rebounded, it still cost money. Um, not Maybe not a lot, but when you have a few of these in the same sector, it's tricky. Now, for those who trade themselves or those who are investors in 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 these strategies and maybe have access to a little bit more detail, you will know that some equity markets have actually been okay, like the Nasdaq. The Nasdaq this year has actually been okay. It only triggered, I think, relatively mild, short positions, but quickly reversed, you were able to get long. And of course, it's gone on to make significantly new highs, and that's what we like. So it's not all equities uh, equities this year, but it's certainly, I would say, equities as a sector has been incredibly difficult, but not only in 2020. It kind of starts in 2018. And then we've had a couple of these, maybe you could even argue maybe three of these situations because there was Q4 of 18 as well as February. But I will also say that equities by far was the best and it was a really strong sector in 2013 and 2017. Much, much bigger performance compared to the losses we're seeing now. So it's not like equities is doing something terrible. It's just it's happened in the last couple of years. So if we start with that, what do you have any takeaways? Uh, you trade obviously a little bit differently, but do you have any takeaways in that? And by the way, I'll warn you already, Moritz, that there's a couple of questions coming up for you regarding <laughs> equities and, and how your system have been uh, trading those, because I think you right. mentioned that last week.
2: Well, I'm looking forward to that.
1: Yeah, exactly. But as the listeners can hear, it's not just Moritz that went short equities. We, we, <clears throat> we,
2: we did as well in some of them. Yes. Um, Well, first off, I I like the way you look at that, Niels, is from a broader perspective, rather than saying, you know, equities didn't work this year, and therefore equities are bad in any shape or form. They are not. We just trade them in the same way in our portfolio as we do the other markets. And there are so many years where the equities have been the best performing sector. So let's just take it for what it is and not get carried away just by, you know, the most recent performance of a certain sector. These things change. Some of you listeners may have seen charts, and, and I enjoy these charts where you know CTAs plot the performance attribution of their sectors over time by year, you know, from best to worst. And you will see that it's mixed up all the time. You know, one year it's oil, the best performer and the worst performance equities and have X's in the middle, right? And 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 the next year it's completely different. And the following year it's different yet again, right? And so it just shows that. It doesn't really mean all that much. Yes, it has been the equities this year that, you know, I think I've lost more than 20% in the equities. Um, but that doesn't mean anything for next year. It doesn't mean anything for the next month. Right. So yeah. just objectively look at the numbers, look at the facts, but don't overinterpret them. Yeah. Um, I wanted to make two more points on what you've said earlier with, you know, being in a drawdown most of the time. So technically speaking, just, you know, mathematically. I'm in a drawdown 99.9% of the time or even more, depending on how many ditches I want to put after the nine, right? The only time I'm not in a drawdown is when I make a new high. And if I then make a, on the next day, a consecutive new high, right? Then that means for one day, I'm not in drawdown. But if I make a new all-time high and the next day I'm losing a little bit of money, even though that drawdown is probably very small, it is technically a drawdown, right? So we are permanently in drawdown. It is, you know, we're not, this is just the way we trade. I think, you know, that is true for most strategies. Unless you're, you have something crazy on your books, but um, it is something that we have to live with. And it's only then an inconvenience if, you know, those drawdowns become larger. Like, you know, to me to say, um, you know, I'm down 50 basis points. This is technically a drawdown. At the same time, it's kind of like a one day PL. It doesn't really matter, right? But right now, you know, I've lost 7% or more than 7% this year. I think my my drawdown from the high is even a bit higher than that. Yeah, so this is a drawdown, right? So I'm in an 8%, 9%, whatever drawdown. And I have to, or my system, my system together with me, we're kind of like married. <laughs> uh, we have to, you know, work our, our way out of that over time. And, you know, we we don't we don't know yet how long that's going
1: to take. Hopefully it, divorce, yeah, hopefully it won't end in divorce, more Hopefully
2: it won't end in divorce. I think I'm probably past that point of divorce. I fell in love so much with that thing, so it's it's kind of like you know, come hello high water. It's the, the 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 wedding bands have been exchanged, and I'm not going to undo it
1: for good and for bad, as they for say. For good and for it.
2: bad, that's how they say. And 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 just so 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 this is about the drawdowns, and then. With regards to the outlook, I mean, we don't forecast returns, we don't forecast markets, right? At the same time, we're human beings, we're model driven traders, but we're human beings. And we've just said that the past couple of months have kind of like been flattish when you step away from the charts and you look at them from a larger perspective, right? But on the other hand, I think with all the, there's the US election coming up, and maybe some people are too pessimistic in the sense that they believe, oh, for sure it's going to be a controversy, and for sure it's not going to be certain who the next president is going to be, and it's going to take months to figure that out. And a Supreme Court decision. Well, I don't know. Maybe there is a clear winner. Maybe somebody will contest the results, but maybe two weeks later there's a decision or like a Supreme Court decision on, on who the president is, and you know, it's kind of like it's it's done. Maybe it's not the end of the world, right? But In any case, and it probably doesn't matter who the president's going to be, I think it will have an impact on the markets. It will have a massive impact on the markets if, I believe at least, think, if there's no clear winner, if it really takes a long time to figure out who the winner is going to be, who the president of the United States, the most powerful nation on earth, is going to be. If it is Trump, I would expect the markets reacting in a certain way. And if it is Biden, I would expect the markets to react in a certain way. The equity markets, the bond markets, the currency markets, you know, all sorts of stuff. I think, you know, we'll reshuffle the deck a little bit come October, November, and maybe this will trigger some new trends and the trend barometer, which reads below 20, as you've said, may, as a result of that, be at a much nicer and higher value. And and maybe this is a better environment for us. This also means, even though I am down seven percent I haven't thrown in the towel on 2020, because sometimes I make seven percent in a month, and there's three more months to go, right? And there's an interesting period coming up, so let's just okay. do it. It'll be so great—the best Christmas present. Right? It's kind of like you know, we're we're there, and it's kind of like, oh yeah, I've been down down seven eight percent at the beginning of October, and look, twenty twenty plus five, fantastic.
1: You know, it's funny. I mean, it's funny you say that because I. Th- this is a little bit from memory, but I think directionally, I think I'm right on this one. Q4 has often proven to be the strongest quarter for trend followers. And uh, I can't say exactly why that is, but there's certainly been uh, a few instances in in uh, history where Q4 just turns out to be a banger period, especially if the year has started off a little bit on the weak side so so yeah i i agree with you that a lot of things can can still happen but i don't want to let go completely about this little review so we talked about the equities right but there's another sector that i think has been really tricky for many trend followers for a while and it's another one of these highly liquid sectors so again if you can imagine you're a trend follower and you have certain allocations to uh, different markets then of course we know that For some managers who get very large, they have to favor the more liquid sectors, the financials over commodities. And so it may hit a little bit harder when it's one of the really liquid sectors like equities, like fixed income or like currencies that runs into a a kind of range trading. And the sector I'm talking about now that I think has been really tricky is the currencies. I took a chart and, and again, people can do this on their own, but if you just look five years back, and and I, I just picked the Yen, I mean, the Yen had a great downtrend in Q4 of 16, and since then, it's been trading pretty much between 90 on the low side and 99 on the upside. And not only has it traded in a range where not a lot happens, it has traded in a range that is exactly big enough to trigger buying signals when when it's uh, on the high side and 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 sell signals on the low side so you have really seen a lot of whipsaw in the yen, but also in a few of the other currencies now on our side we only trade against the US dollar so there may be some crosses that have done really well I'm sure if you were short Turkish lira you would have been you know celebrating for a while but we don't trade that illiquid stuff so but for these kind of core currencies against the US dollar it has been tricky Again with our time frame and, and so on and so forth. I don't know if that's also something you've noticed on your side, Moritz.
2: Yes, same here. And um, you know, I, I should say that I'm only trading the CME and ICE listed currency futures contracts. So most of them are against like that the majors are against the US dollar right. I do think there's something to be said for trading other pairs, the miners. I'm not sure about the exotics, but you know you can definitely say you know trading the Israeli shekel, Hungarian forint, you know the Colombian peso, things of that or these these type of currencies for which a CME or ICE listed contract doesn't exist. But if you have an institutional trading environment, you can trade them, and I think there is something there in terms of diversification and not having every currency kind of like facing against the dollar may be beneficial to your portfolio. But I agree with you. You know the the, the yen, yes, rage bound thing and uh, web-sawing. Actually, you could say the same for the Nikkei. You know, I, I had a look at the Nikkei index yesterday, and that's also like this flat market. And that's that's dangerous territory for us, right? Because we you know we we may we may buy the high and then actually sell the low, and do that a couple of times in a row, rather than buying the high and selling even higher. Yeah, one of the markets where I think. My system could possibly be at risk of doing something like that right now is crude oil. Crude oil has been recovering. It has recovered and recovered and recovered, and I've held the short position. But it's getting like, I'm less short than I used to be, right? My net short position is getting much smaller. Because it's also like, you know, now there's a couple of months since May when the market was negative, right? And it's kind of like, you know, if it stays where it is, if it goes a little bit higher, then... Boom, all of a sudden it will be net long, right? But it, it, it again, like you, you look at the thing, of course, I will take the long position. I know I have, you know, a certain amount of risk. I have initial stop loss. So, you know, what's the deal? Just, you know, repeat what I do all the time. But, you know, at the same time, it could be like, well, maybe that is a little bit of a, of a top, right? And if the virus comes back and people drive less and there's more of a lockdown in home office, then we have the same show again, right? Where, you know, crude goes down and just just at the exact point in time where I established the long position, right? As, uh, as if the market knew what Moritz is doing.
1: And you know, this is why in my introduction, I said to people out there who believe in trend following, but also know that it's a tricky strategy from time to time to hold on to. And that is, we are going through one of these periods where uh, a little bit of handholding uh, can come a long way and where you just need to look at the bigger picture, which I'll come to at the end of this. Another market uh, which represents a sector that has been somewhat difficult, maybe not as difficult, but it's been, at least on our side, somewhat challenging. And this is where you think, well, wow, you get all this diversification by trading commodities, um, great, but it's not always that great. And and that's the grains. I mean, the grains have been tricky, over you know, generally. And I was just picking on one market when I l- pulled up a chart this morning and that was wheat. And wheat really looks erratic with lots of spikes both to the upside and to the downside and this has gone on for also about five years where there's been no long-term sustained trends so i just want to mention that for those who uh, have an interest in that and then i want to jump straight because i don't want to end on a on a kind of a down note saying oh we have all these tricky markets uh, you know show me something that actually worked and so there are markets that actually has done pretty well And the one I just wanted to mention is actually from the energy sector that you talked about just before, Moritz, and that's something like natural gas. I mean, if you look at natural gas in the last five years, it's had a really nice downtrend for the most part. There was a little bit of a spike uh, in 2016, I think it was, so maybe it was actually maybe it was in 18, but the last couple of years, let me put it that way, the last couple of years, nat gas has really had a really nice downtrend, not too volatile and something that we could get our systems uh, engaged in it's actually dropped from six dollars to around two at the low now we're at 2.8 so but still a pretty good downtrend so it just goes to show that all markets have their own cycles from range trading uh, to trending Um, and sometimes we get a cluster of markets where we just see them trading in a range for a while and that's obviously where we tend to lose money as well as if they have big reversals at the same time so yeah just just to mention a market that people can look up themselves and so they can at least see what a good trend looks like
2: Uh, i agree they're all different um i remember us talking about palladium earlier this year where we had this massive trend to the top side and it's just been just been a great market to make money off of uh on the long side but like you say wheat kansas wheat corn just from memory, when I look, you know, these markets, my head tells me that, you know, my system probably they are among the worst markets to none of their fault. It's just, you know, it's in terms of raw dollar P&L, I think corn is probably among the among the worst. Definitely down there. I don't know if that means anything. It just means that, you know, since I've tested my system, corn just you know somebody has to be. Some market has to be the the worst performing market in a sure. in any universe of markets. So it just happens to be corn. I don't hold it against corn. Maybe, you know, uh, <laughs> maybe in a couple of weeks it's, or, or, or years, it's one of the best performing markets. So I'll just uh, continue to drag it along yeah. because there's no reason to drop
1: it off. And we haven't even talked about, but I'm sure a lot of people who are kind of uh, somewhat interested in this space and follow it close semi closely, they know that there has been at least a couple of sectors who have behaved really well and done very well for strategies like like uh, what we trade and and that is of course bonds and interest rates they've been absolutely fantastic in the last few years and 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 hopefully long will that last now i want to end this segment just something that i this is what i think is the magic part of 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 why and why everyone listening to us should be seriously considering if they don't have exposure to trend following they should seriously consider this, and and of course I'm biased here because I have to use the data that I have access to through my work. Um, but so forget about you know the name, but just look at the think about the numbers, and think about the the you know the evidence so to speak. And so the exercise I did was just to say, okay, so we have a track record that goes back to 1984. So let's just do the experiment of saying, okay, if you put a thousand dollars in the S and P 500 back in November eighty four, if you put $1,000 into what we do as a trend follower, and if you also took a portfolio, if you put $1,000, but you split it in two, you set $500 in the S&P, $500 in what we do, and you, in this experiment, it's rebalanced every month. Now, practically, you probably wouldn't do that, but even if you rebalanced on a quarterly basis or even an annual basis, it probably doesn't make that much of a difference. But here's the magic, in my opinion. So $1,000, that you put in and did nothing else in the S&P today at the end of August of this year it's worth 48,000 which is fantastic right 48 times your money in our portfolio uh, net of fees and all of that stuff it's worth $68,000 so even better fantastic great but here's the magic the 50-50 portfolio which is so easy to implement you would expect, I kind of mentally expected it to be somewhere in the middle, right? You think, okay, it must be the average. No, 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 no. It's worth $102,000. So it's just almost the sum of the two by just combining two truly uncorrelated assets. And that's the magic that people need to understand about what we do. It's the role they play in a portfolio. Not in itself, what we deliver as managers, but but actually how when we deliver it and how we deliver it compared to, say, a traditional uh, equity portfolio. and I think that's something that shouldn't change in my in my opinion. I don't think it will. And uh, even this year, I think is uh, for the combined portfolio, it's a positive year, which is interesting.
2: yes, it's amazing, right the the benefits of diversification and uncorrelation and sometimes negative correlation because when you you know look back to 2008 when you know equity markets were way way down but some of the trend following CTAs were way way up some of them more than 100% in that year right if you have to if you had a 50-50 S&P CTA allocation going on then there's a good chance that you would have had a positive year maybe a flat year Right, depending on what CTA you used. But it just goes to show that, well, you're not in a hole, right? You don't have to work your, your way out of a drawdown. You can compound from that now much higher level and take it from there. Whereas, you know, everybody that is 100% buy and hope, buy and hold long only has, you know, to first work itself or him or herself out of that drawdown, which I don't know how long it took, but it, you know, it took some time. And you just have that advantage. And that is that is why it is so strong.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Now, we've got a few questions, as I mentioned, so I'm going to try and do my best to get through all of them. Some of them are quite long, but I think it's important. Uh, and of course, we want to do our very best to honor those of you who take time to write in to info on and and ask us questions because it's, it's a good gauge for us to see where the interest and challenges are when it comes to this strategy. So we really do appreciate all of this. So this question, I have a feeling most of the questions are really for you today, Moritz. So uh, be prepared. Okay. So this is from James. And he says, I'm continuing my way through your back catalogue. It's really great. I have a couple of questions for considerations for your show. Sorry for the length. Feel free to paraphrase. Okay, so I'll try and do that. The question is about staying in the trade and sticking with your system. Like many, I feel my timing for getting into a trade can be quite good. I'm listening to you guys, reading, learning, teaching myself many indicators and timeframes and developing my own systems and getting into a trade generally works out. Okay, so that's point number one. Now, in the most recent podcast, Moritz spoke about how he was long on the indices during the recent crash, then switched his system to short based on his indicators, which I guess is highly likely in a crash. But then these indicators don't indicate a reversal in quite a long bull market for U.S. indices that continues for months after. And then he goes on to say, yeah, the FTSE has been pretty flat, so maybe you are more prone to European indices. And then the question is, how is that? Is it due to the time sensitivity settings? It seems like a long lag time not to identify a strong trend in U.S., Equities, so must be something else. So I, I'll be interested in. Let's stop there and let's hear your answer to that because I do think that it probably depends on which country we're talking about. Yes, I think it
2: depends on the country, but I guess the the essence of my answer to this question is is time frame and trading speed. There are, James, you know, shorter term time frames that you know some CTAs trade. You know, you could say, let's look at a forty day. Breakout like a 40-day high or a 40-day low. Let's just say that's short term. To me, that's short term, right? On the other hand, you could say, well, I'm looking at a 350 or even a 400-day high or low. Let's call that long term. And when you now envisage that Donchian channel, essentially, it becomes clear that when you have a rapid sell-off, as we did in March that of course the shorter term timeframes will pick that up relatively quickly and change the positioning of the system from long to short and they will hold that position until you know that the bottom is reached they're not going to flip there because you know it's not an indicator of it's not indicating what the next day's return is going to be right but when the market turns around as it did in a very rapid v-shaped form then a short term trading system will relatively soon detect a new 40 day high in my example, right. And slowly position the model or the system back to a long positioning. Whereas, you know, coming back to my 350 day or, you know, 400 day breakout, when you're down to the trough uh, in April or whenever the low was on, on the equities, well, it takes quite some time to make a new 400 day high. And so therefore, you know, you're kind of like stuck with a position for longer. Or you 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 know you you may not even get out of the long position as quickly, right? Because that the rally may have been so strong in the run-up to the local high in in March that you know you you just write the correction full down with with your long position on because it doesn't trigger an exit. It is a possibility. It just depends on how you design your system and what time frames and what stop levels and exits you trade. And if you have the capital and if you have the number of markets at hand, there is diversification potential in trading multiple time frames and not just rely on one.
1: Yeah, and I would add to that, Moritz said, James, I would say that if you look at the just different equity markets, and we actually talked about it earlier today, they have been quite different. As you point out, and as Moritz says, I mean, you have... U.S. equities that have gone on, and most of them actually have just made a new... Obviously, the Nasdaq has made a significant new high. Most of them have gone back to make, you know, a small new high, which could actually trigger some changes in positions uh, based on that. But then you look at Europe and Asia, um, and they're far away from from the highs they came from in February. So there's been a big difference in how the markets have traded, and therefore you would expect also differences in... Positioning, So that's one point. Then now you go on, uh, James, to say and ask a few things more. I'm just le- reading through here because you do talk about oil, but I think that's pretty much the same as uh, Moritz talked about earlier today, so I don't want to repeat that. And then you go on and say, and finally back to exiting a trade at a loss-making position. If Moritz is still short on equity indices, which means between now and Ex- uh, Christmas, he'll probably do well. Where will he take his profit? Okay, so obviously as a reversal type system, we don't know exactly where that profit will be taken. So, okay. He uses vol indicators to target profit in a a short as he did on oil. But in this equity case, how is he still in his long trades on indices? Surely he's been stopped out. But now as the increase from the bull markets uh, is higher than the decline, which made his system go short. I'm not so sure I really fully understand that question, James, uh, or comment. But I think we've touched on most of this uh, already, unless you, there's something you want to just add.
2: Uh, not much, but just, James, one thing. I don't have a profit target, right? right. I, I think this is something that you've mentioned. This is very important. I I have the position and I will hold that position for as long as it takes. You know, I mean, the profit target is essentially infinity, if, if you know, it doesn't hit my stop, I'll hold it forever. So there is there is no profit target. And, and also what I'd like to say is that the way I trade, my system allows me to have no position in a market at a certain point in time. And for some of the equity indices, uh, this is the case. I think it's the case for the FTSE at that point in time where, you know, I just don't have a long position on. I don't have a short position on. I'm just flat. I'm not interested or my system is not interested in trading that market right now, right? Whereas the NASDAQ, yeah, I'm long. And yes, sure, I, at some point I will, I guess, be stopped out unless the thing goes on forever. But it is not a profit target. It's just a stop loss or an exit.
1: Yeah. Now we're going to take a trip to Mexico. We're going to uh, take a question from Eduardo. Eduardo who is uh, writing to us from Mexico. Eduardo is 25, he writes, and he's been learning about systematic trading from the podcast now for the last six months. And um, I appreciate your kind words on that, Eduardo. Now, the question Eduardo is, is really posing is about inflation and impact on bonds and inflation indexed bonds. And that is a little bit outside our normal uh, kind of uh playground uh eduardo but i do think we can talk a little bit about it i mean you talk about trend following in inflation index bonds is that a thing right so all i would say is that trend following is a concept right so you can of course apply it to whatever you want whatever market it doesn't mean that it works as well in some markets and also as we have often cautioned people about I don't think you should necessarily think about trend following as something you only do on a small narrow set of markets or within the same sector or anything like that Uh, as we've just illustrated earlier today uh, you can have periods where certain sectors really don't work for a number of years and then uh, you need other sectors to trade that that uh, kind of pays uh, you can pay for those uh, losing trades and so on and so forth so um, so it's difficult to kind of give you any uh, concrete answers in terms of what will happen if we have a sudden increase in inflation and, and so on and so forth. Um, but what I do think is a little bit of a, a debate from time to time is how will trend followers do when interest rates start to rise. What's really interesting about interest rates at the moment is that you have this beautiful symmetry if you look at US interest rates because they actually had their last major bottom in 1942, and then they went all the way up to 1981. So for 39 years, they went higher and they peaked in 1981. And of course, if you add 39 years to 1981, whoops, you get 2020. So there's maybe a little bit of symmetry there in play, and perhaps we are seeing the lows of the interest rate cycle being formed this year or early next year, who knows. But personally, I think we're close unless the world completely uh, goes up in flames and we're going to have negative ra- rates in the whole world. But we know the Fed has always been out saying that that's not in their interest, at least. So, so again, just back to that. I mean, as a firm, we, have, we are one of few firms that actually traded while interest rates were going up. So back in the 70s, when we started, uh, interest rates were actually still on the rise. And and that period, trend following worked really well. It's not a guarantee that it's going to do as well uh, when interest rates start to rise this time around because it's obviously not just the interest rate sector that will be determining our performance. Um, But I don't see any reason why trend followers couldn't do well in an interest rate rising environment, especially if it's caused by inflation and inflation expectations because in that scenario, you would expect and you would think that commodities could enter some kind of strong bull market. And as we have talked about before in the podcast, what people may not know is that most performance in a trend-following portfolio comes from the long-sided trades. So we make a lot more money when markets are in a bull market because you could say, in theory, price could go to infinity. It's a little bit different when we talk about short trades. And also, at least in my own mind, I've always felt that it takes longer to form a top than it does to form a bottom. I think this year we've seen that again. I mean, equities turned on one day. Same in 2009, I think it was. Uh, they turned pretty much on one day after the uh, great financial crisis. Uh, yet, when it turns about uh, tops, although there has been a couple of examples in recent years where it turned also on a dime at the at the high, but they usually take a little bit longer to form. And I think that's why we are also better at capturing the long sided profits. So... Have you traded inflation index bonds Mortz?
2: No, I have not. I have okay. not traded, never ever traded uh, tips or any other types of inflation protected or inflation referencing securities or instruments. There, there's, you know, a market out there for some of those uh, indices. Even there's inflation indices and banks make markets on inflation and inflation expectations. And you can trade swaps with, swaps with them, inflation swaps, et cetera. But obviously that is nothing that I can do from my from my home base here. And there is no futures contracts uh, listed on uh, inflation-linked securities. I I think at least, I, I I'm not 100% sure, but uh, the last time I looked, I didn't find any. So they're not part of my portfolio. I don't miss them, to be honest. I think, you know, if, if I had tips in my portfolio instead of the the regular treasuries, it wouldn't be all that different, to be quite frank, right? It is more interesting, I guess, what our performance is going to be and how it will impact our way of trading if slash when inflation shows up. And, you know, I'm, I'm a child of the late 70s. I've never in my entire life experienced any meaningful inflation. Neither did my parents, really, both of whom were born after the second world war. I mean, there have been periods where sure inflation may have been, you know, two or three or sometimes maybe 4% a year. And there were the more inflationary periods uh, even in the United States, but we didn't live there. So, So here we, you know, I've never experienced it. If it comes, it will be completely new to me. It's really, you know, you can only read about it in books or hear people talk about it who have experienced it. But me personally, I've never experienced it. It's going to be very interesting. To see what that does, also to the to the mindset of the population and how people react, because you know there's it's not only the raw numbers when there's inflation out there. It's you know psychology and how do people react to that and what are they talking about and what do they purchase and how do they decide on you know buying a house or selling a house or buying a car or selling a car you know things of that nature. It's it's very complicated for me, impossible to forecast that. Of course, when You look at a fiat currency and you have a high inflation environment, what you get back in terms of dollars uh, in a year's time is worth less than what it is worth today, right? So I've said this before, we may actually get some very nice trends, as you've said, in the commodities on the long side, right? Commodities are normally reactive, they're sensitive, to inflation, positively sensitive to inflation, right? And if we try and follow them on the long side, we may actually make some good dollars from it. But what are these dollars going to be worth once we exit the trade? You see what I mean? It's not easy, and not all of these assets in our portfolio have an immediate reaction function, an immediate you know inflation dynamic built into them. Mathematically, we know that you know a bond, a long duration bond, will be the the worst impacted asset among the worst impacted asset, right? Because it says, well, you get your money back in 30 years time, say it's a 30 year bond, right? So you have that 30, say it's your coupon bond, you have a 30 year duration on that bond. Well, obviously 30 years of inflation are going to destroy that bond. So the, these types of bonds, they will really drop in value. But for other types of assets, it is not as clear cut. So for instance, you know, equities where you have a reference to real asset and the profits of a company, how will they operate and how will they function in a inflationary environment? If it is benign positive inflation, then maybe they will be performing really well because, you know, it's not impacting their business all too much and they can increase prices. So therefore, having a long position to equities may be very good but if inflation gets out of control if it's like and it doesn't have to be hyperinflationary because hyperinflationary that's you know this is like thousands of percent and tens of thousands and thousand, you know hundreds of thousands of percent like Weimar type of inflation i mean this is just it's running away it's like you know 100% inflation in in a week or something like that right but even if you know you have something like let, let's say 15% inflation in a year i'm not sure if equities in an environment as such are still going to be performing that positively. There's all sorts of academic work on that. You know, as there there may be a tipping point. You know that you know if inflation gets too high, then companies will suffer because you know they can't get the same revenue. They can't you know put the prices through onto their products and all that type of stuff. But as Albert Einstein said, in in theory, practice and theory should be the same. But in practice, they are not. It's we we just don't know that. And all of the academic and all the empirical research on uh, you know past inflationary periods and their impact on equities. I believe that that research is very tainted because the companies it was applied to, right? It's kind of something like you know the Axons and the Shell's and the Mobiles. Like the the companies back then were very different. Today we have tech companies, you know, for the most part the Fang stocks, and you know those guys are really running the show and they're dominating the equity indices. And it's really all about the tech, you know, and and, and what are we doing with technologies going forward. So how's technology impacted by inflation? I think, you know, the answer to that is likely very different to how, you know, a uh, an oil exploration company uh, or an oil production company is impacted by inflation in, you know, the 1920, forty you know, period. So jumping to the conclusion that inflation of a certain magnitude will have A, B, C result on equity prices, I think is, um, to me, it's impossible. I would not do that. It's, it's, it's really a coin toss. I don't know. I'm just out of my box
1: here. (laughs) Fair enough. Eduardo also has a question about commissions and the impact on trading. And all I would say to that is that you're absolutely right. Of course, they have an impact. If you are longer term trend followers like uh, Moritz and we are, then you uh, obviously are less sensitive to this. But of course, you should always try to get the best price from your broker and uh, pay close attention to that. Luckily, I would say that that's those commission rates have come down generally in the last uh, many years. And if you ask Robinhood, it's free to trade. So uh, anyways. Um, nothing nothing is free. Oh, no, I forgot. They sell your data. They do all yeah, this stuff. Yeah, yeah and right. they sell your order flow
2: and, and all that. But <laughs> generally, I do agree. And I, I'm happy that you bring that topic up because I, I'd like to mention one thing. Well, first off, yes, commissions have been have been coming down. And I think this is true for execution and clearing commissions. I'm not so sure for exchange fees, but they're really small anyways, right? So just to give an example, if you're trading one lot of, say, the five-year US Treasury futures contract, that is right now about $126,000 worth of exposure. And you can get that exposure, that magnitude of of exposure for, I don't know, depending on which broker you use, it could be anything between, you know, a buck 50 or five bucks but it doesn't matter if it's a buck 50 or five bucks. It's it's unlikely to be substantially higher than five bucks because when you divide five by 126,000, I can't do that at the top of my head, but it's a very, very, very small number, right? And it's really not meaningful to the long-term success of your trading system. Slippage is another factor. But what I wanted to bring up is margin and that margin requirements, A, they change. they are dynamic. They're not a constant. They're not fixed. Your clearing broker does not tell you, hey, Moritz, your margin requirement on five-year U.S. treasuries is always going to be 3% of the contract value. Far from it, right? It changes all the time. Not all the time, but, you know, periodically it changes in response to volatility in the market and and other things. But then there is a funding spread that is charged on margin requirement, and there is a funding spread that is charged on non-margin capital at the level of the clearing broker. And it is really those spreads that have much more impact, cost impact on your trading results than the commissions, unless you are a you know, very frequent trader or you're trading spreads or you know something like that. But if you trade in the way that I presume Dunn Capital and and, and you know, I am are trading, which is more like a medium to long-term trend following style. We're not trading in and out of the markets every day. We do rollovers, but you know they happen, you know, on a monthly basis or on a quarterly basis, or depending on how you roll your markets. But it's, it's it's not really too much of a big deal. So it's not the commissions. It's a little bit of the slippage, but it's really the funding spreads. And I think most people overlook them because it's kind of like this number, and it you know it takes a little bit of an effort to make a calculation. It's percentages on margin capital, but the margin capital is. Is not a fixed number. So you kind of like you skip that thing, but it's very easy to work with commissions. It says, you know, 350. Okay, 350, work with 350, right?
1: Can you give an example, Moritz, for those who may not know what you mean by funding spread? Can you give an example? Okay, so your
2: clearing broker is a member of the clearinghouse, right? Or is generally a member of the clearinghouse and posts initial margin on your behalf. It is not Moritz. I don't have a relationship with the CME, right? My Broker R.J. O'Brien has a relationship with the CME. I'm a client of R.J. O'Brien. When I trade an S&P futures contract, what happens is that R.J. O'Brien pays the initial margin requirement on my behalf, and they will do that as long as my account is funded and you know it's it's it, it's it's over-margined and there's no deficit and and none of that stuff, right? Then they will do that, but the 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 money that they send over to the clearing house of the CME well first of all the CME doesn't do it free of charge right the CME does not pay overnight overnight flat on that money they pay overnight minus the spread so that then gets back to the clearing broker and then the clearing broker charges me the spread on that So, you know, I could end up with something like, say, overnight minus 30, overnight minus 40, overnight minus 50. And if you go to a retail broker, it could be even worse, right? And that's on margin. And then on non-margin capital, so say your margin to equity ratio is 20%, that means you have 80% of your money is, you know, excess cash. You don't need it to pay margin on a clearinghouse. So that means no clearinghouse can therefore charge a spread on that capital, but your clearing broker will nevertheless charge you a spread on that money, right? So there will always be, they won't pay you overnight on it. They will pay you overnight minus the spread on it. And by the way, if you have a deficit, which, you know, with the way we trade with our clearing brokers can easily be the case, right? So I have my base currency in euro. If I trade a US dollar denominated contract, the S&P 500, for instance, and my system has it wrong then that produces a variation margin loss, which means that I could run a negative negative balance in US dollars for a period of time. I can, of course, convert that every day, do an FX conversion, but that would cost me, right? Or I can carry that negative balance because my account is still well-margined in euros. But if I have a negative balance, that spread is even larger than, so this is now a debit spread, that is even larger than the credit spread. So it is really in these dynamics of debit spreads and credit spreads applied to initial margin and access cash, where I think a lot of the music plays and where people, at least in my opinion when I speak to them, don't look closely enough because they, they're presented with commissions. Here's a low commission broker. We're only charging you one buck per trade, or you know we're charging you zero. But there are other things that cost money. And you know if those spreads, let's just say if they're 1%, and I guess for some brokers they are one percent. Well, guess what? You're down one percent just because of funding spreads at the beginning of the year. And this may well be more than the amount of commissions that you will pay in relation to the notional exposure of contracts that you're trading, which you know is probably less than one percent. And the final point I want to make on that is the initial margin requirements are they're set by the exchange by the clearinghouse. They say, well. An S&P contract, I don't know, costs $7,000 or whatever. I don't know the exact number, somewhere around there. But then your broker may say, I either accept what the clearinghouse charges and I'm just routing that through and my broker operates in that way. I've never had it in any different way. But there are other brokers and I know who it is. And I guess some of the listeners on that show have probably received the same email as I did. I'm not going to mention it, but it's a US-based retail broker, a big one. And they have their own margin schedule. They take the exchange margin kind of like as a reference point, but then they say, well, no, but our margin requirement, because I'm clearing the trades on your behalf with that exchange, is, let's just say, twice that amount. And on some contracts, say Bitcoin, it's 600 times that amount. It's all in the fine print. And it changes so quickly that you never realize it. But then there's a massive funding spread applied to that. And so there has been an email sent out. And, you know, I'm I'm a client of that firm. I don't trade much with them, but I still have an account there. So I get these emails saying like, well, because of the upcoming... US election and the anticipated higher volatility around the election, we're going to increase our margin by 35%. Boom, there you have it. Please make sure your accounts are well-funded and margin, yada, 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 right? So what that essentially means is that rather than now paying, you know, $7,000 for a S&P contract, in my hypothetical example, it's probably somewhere around there. Let's just say you're now paying $10,000. But it's not only for the S&P, it's for the bonds, it's for all of that, right? So $3,000, more than it used to be and on that three thousand dollars you're paying the funding spread. So you see where I'm going with that, right? It is a component, a very real and a very important component, cost component of your trading are the the funding spreads that are applied to your account. So you should have a closer look at them and find a broker that treats you fairly.
1: Fantastic. Great stuff, Moritz, thanks for that. I'm sure Eduardo and a few other people really got something from that since we all need a broker if we want to be in this business. Next question, we go back to Europe. We go all the way up to the north, to Finland, from Antti. Antti, right? Hi, guys. Love the show. And then you go straight into, again, asking specifically about your system, so, so you must have hit a nerve last time we were on. Um, I'm going to paraphrase the question because it's very simple, actually, when you read through the email. So I hope that's okay with you, Antti. And the question he writes very simply is, is your system a full stop and reverse, meaning are you always long or short and never neutral?
2: No, I can be neutral. I can have flat positions. I do have flat positions right now, as I've mentioned earlier. I am not like a in a binary system where I'm either long or short, but never in between. So my my system has that in-between Module or in the, that in, in in between possibility of having no position,
1: and and that is without I don't think we give anything away. You haven't said before, and that is because it is a kind of a channel breakout, right? There is a channel. Correct. You- um, yeah,
2: exactly. So that's not a secret. I I, I do trade breakouts, and um, and and because of that, you know, I sometimes don't have a position because sometimes there is just no new high or no new low, you know, that matches my time frame that I'm looking at, so that I would have a position on. Whereas. Say you're trading a, uh, a golden cross, you know, a 50 fifty, fifty two hundred day moving average crossover system, right? And if, if your only rule is if the fifty is above the two hundred, then then one and one equals long, and if it is below one two hundred, then then minus one, which equals short. Then yes, you will always flip from immediately long to immediately short, and there's never anything in between. It is a matter of taste at the end of the day. I don't want to come across of you know as, as saying one is better than the other. Uh, it is you know what I like is what I like. What you like is what you like. All of those systems have trend following characteristics. You can work with all of them. So it's a matter of taste.
1: Sure. We've got a few more questions uh, from two more listeners, which is great. And um, this is from Mikhail K. Because we have another one, which is from Michael. So I just want to make sure you, there's a distinction there. But Mikhail, as far as I can tell, it's uh, the way it's pronounced. Again, a question. This is uh, something I think we've touched on uh, before, but let's do it again. So Mike is 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 developing his own system, and one of the questions he has is: Is there any difference to building a system based on options instead of futures? And I, what I what I think you mean by that is just that you want to trade the options rather than the futures. And also, uh, if, we have any, if we have any great resources, we can recommend on that subject. And the other question is a little bit about uh, using CFDs where you can get smaller risks if you have a small account size, whether we have any advice or experience with that. I have to say, Mike, I don't have any experience with CFDs and uh, I don't uh, have any experience trading a trend system with with options, but I know Moritz has traded options in his past, so... Um, Maybe you are better at giving some thoughts to this.
2: Yeah, uh, that has kind of like been my one of my trading upbringings, uh, trading options. But um, I've never traded options with a trend following trading system, and I don't think that, that is something that I would like to do. I I, I really encourage uh, you, Mikel to to think about that options are very different to futures contract, right? It's not a linear response function in price. It's a nonlinear response function in price, unless you're trading very deep in the money options. So, you know, you have to be familiar with option theory around it, and you have to be in a position to understand whether the option you're buying or selling, how that is priced and how it will react, what the sensitivities of that option are, to pricing parameters such as implied volatility. A futures contract doesn't care about implied volatility. A futures contract only cares about the price of the underlying asset, right? Interest rates, dividends, re, you know, repo things like that, depending on on the asset, but there's no volatility function that impacts it, right? There's no gamma, there's no theta, none of that stuff. So it is it is a different thing really and um just be aware by all means, if if you have the historical data on options, which, by the way, I, I at least in my experience, uh, can be relatively difficult to obtain in a clean way across you know the entire series of options, meaning all the strike prices and all the maturities. But if you have that, by all means, give it a shot and test it and see what you can find. But I don't do it, and I have no plans of doing it. It is not something that really interests me in terms of trend following. CFDs, I know what they are. I don't use them. CFDs are kind of like mini futures, if you will. Right? They're not traded on a a regulated exchange. They are provided by spread betting firms or brokers who create these products as contracts for differences. You know, they have leverage embedded in them. They kind of like work like futures, but they have much smaller contract sizes. But of course, they are also a retail product, which means that you know the funding spreads that are implied for the funding of that CFD are normally much higher than what you would see implied in, for instance, uh, a CME traded um, futures contract. So it's not free of charge, obviously, but yes, it, uh, it does allow for smaller sizing. I cannot say anything about the risk really because, you know, there is no clearinghouse behind it. And some of these CFDs, you know, they have been uh known and and maybe some of them continue to give like you know 100 or 200 or 300 to one leverage i mean when you think about that right you have 100 to you know one leverage i mean you buy something something and you know it it moves by one percent and then you're you're done you're either doubled your money or you're 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 out right it is just different be careful have a good check about who the provider is and how secure they are and, and how well capitalized they are
1: yeah thanks for that Mike, and then to the other Mike, Mike N. Mike has a different question, but it's kind of related a little bit to what we talked about earlier in terms of a more diversified overall portfolio. And it's about the optimal allocations towards trend-following versus buy and hold equities and treasuries. Mike writes that he's been doing some research and came up with an optimal allocation of 74% trend-following, 18% equities and 8% treasuries. Of course, this assumes many things about risk-return correlations and amount of history used to determine those and how they apply going forward. And of course, the model used to determine optimal allocation. So, he asked about that, although he did uh, mention later on that uh, he he decided to stay 100% in trend. So, good for you, Mike. But i do think you have an interesting point and i and i think that's what i tried to illustrate earlier on and just by this simple visualization of how powerful it is to mix sometimes trend following with something else in in, in the case that i described it was the s p 500 and of course just taking something really basic without any optimal optimization just saying 50 50. now One of the points you mentioned in your email, I think, Mike, is that you were a little bit concerned that when trend following was long equities, you also would have long equities in the traditional side of the portfolio. And that is, of course, right and the same for for treasuries. I do think, though, in the long run, when you look at these things, as long as... and, And, of course, there is no guarantee that the future will look exactly like the past. But given the fact that these three asset classes have shown some level of non-correlation over time, although I'm not so sure about equities and bonds. Uh, I actually think that most of the time, if you go back long enough, they are positively correlated. But at least trend following has shown to be non-correlated, really, with both bonds and equities. And I think that's the power of it. So I I wouldn't be concerned of having a portfolio that includes all three elements, but I will say right now, uh, just on a personal note, I mean, I don't see any return coming from equities sorry from interest rates and fixed income really other than a potential big risk as we talked about earlier once inflation comes back and all of that you can get really crushed in 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 your fixed income portfolio so so right now i think the best bet is if you want to have a diversified portfolio i would consider you know just doing something relatively simple between equities and trend following if you want to go 100% trend of course uh, that's what most of uh, us in the space tend to do, but it doesn't mean that we don't think that there are other ways you can diversify an overall portfolio. Any views from you, uh, Moritz, while I look up part two of his question in terms of kind of optimal allocations between these asset classes? Nothing
2: to add. I concur.
1: Yeah. Okay, cool. Uh, I'm just reading through your second email here and that is that what Mike goes on to say is that, yeah, one of the things you can achieve by mixing these assets together is, of course, you get a better sharp ratio, but it doesn't mean necessarily you get a better return. I will just refer back to the earlier example I gave where actually between equities uh, and, and this particular trend-following strategy, not only did you get a smoother ride, but you get got a significantly higher return over time. So you can actually sometimes, I think, achieve really good uh, synergies between those two but as i said thanks so much to all of you who send in the questions info at toptradersunplot.com is where moritz and i will be picking up your questions and maybe one of your questions michael would also be relevant for rob carver who is back with us next week in fact we've got some really interesting guests coming up for you in the next few weeks i will keep it a little bit of a secret but rob is not a secret he's uh, in fact here every month so he'll be back next week now I want to say something I didn't say in the beginning and that is just that we do appreciate all the ratings and reviews and they have meant a lot of good for us recently because we see them coming in on a regular basis so if you have not had a chance to uh, leave a rating and review in iTunes we would highly encourage you to do so Uh, and if you don't know exactly how to do it, just go to toptradersonplug.com forward slash review, and there's a little set of instructions. Doing that for us means a lot, and we highly appreciate that. Quick review of the uh, performance, as you probably have guessed from our earlier conversation, this month is not a good one. BTOP50 index is now down 2.5% for the month of September and 2.5% for the year. The SOC CT index is down 3% in September so far as of Thursday. Down 4.4 percent for the year. The trend index is down 4 percent in September so far. Down three and a half for the year. Short-term trend, uh, sorry, short-term uh, CTA's are uh, not doing so badly. Down one percent in September. Still up two percent for the year. This SOC Gen Multi Alternative Risk Premium Index that I found that's flat for the month, but still down 13 percent for the year. And then the MSCI World. Equity index is down five and a quarter in September. So uh, it's not just trend followers having a bad time and down 1.3% for the year. And the World Government Bond Index, touching a little bit of the thing about this correlation thing we do, is up a fraction more than last week. It's up about 84 basis points, but it is pointing to this. Tricky situations that many investors will find themselves in if they've been following the 60-40 type approach to markets and investing. And that is the 40 part is not necessarily as dynamic as you would like it to be because there's not much left room left to uh, go. And so it has not moved a lot, even though equities have had a little bit of a, a rough period this month. So be aware of that. Any parting words for this week? No, nothing, nothing. in particular I hope the weather is going to change to the better.
2: Happy trading, everybody. Good trading in the next week. I'd like to have a good week for
1: once. I'll give you an update next week uh, when we speak again. Well, next week, the month will be finished. so We have the full September rundown. So that would be good. Correct. The great thing about having a global audience as we do, and that is we know that the weather is much nicer somewhere. Somewhere is someone is listening where the sun is shining. It is not Switzerland nor Germany today. Anyways, we do wish you a pleasant week, a great start to the next week. We look forward to being back with you. In the meantime, stay safe and be well.
0: Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor podcast series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.